This morning we're going to be in Ecclesiastes chapter 5, so if you want to go ahead and open up there. Each week we gather together and the central focus of our time is to, is to hear from God. He speaks to us through His Word. Now as preachers, Larry or I, we don't have anything to stand on of our, of our own accord. We are, we are messengers. We are heralds. We're proclaiming truth that transcends our time. We proclaim a message that, that doesn't originate with, with man, but with God. God is the one who sets the agenda for our times together. It doesn't begin with me, and it doesn't begin with you. It originates with, with God, with Him. But there's a challenge that we face in our preaching of God's Word. We open, open up this book together, and we read from a time of ancient Middle Eastern history, some two, three, four thousand years ago. And it can be a challenge to see, what does this have to do with us today? We are here in 21st century, affluent, uh, technologically sophisticated suburban America. What does this ancient Middle Eastern world have to do with us and I think in Ecclesiastes in particular can confront us with this tension as we ask, what is the preacher trying to say? Why is this in the Bible? What's his point? John Stott in his seminal work on preaching between two worlds, he equates preaching to bridge building. The preacher's task is to build a bridge between the world of Scripture and our, our world of today. He writes this, he says, It is across the broad and deep divide of 2,000 years of changing culture, more still in the case of the Old Testament, that Christian communicators have to throw bridges. The preacher's task is to enable God's revealed truth to flow out of the Scriptures into the lives of the men and women of today. Now our passage today in Ecclesiastes 5, it deals with, with temple worship, the temple worship of ancient Israel. And this can seem pretty far removed from us. But God in His infinite wisdom, in His boundless grace, through the preacher of Ecclesiastes, He speaks to us today through these words. So we will read them together. Ecclesiastes chapter 5, beginning in verse 1, we'll read to verse 7. This is the Word of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. Thanks be to God for his word to us this morning. Over the last several weeks, we've been making our way through this book of Ecclesiastes. The preacher of the book, he provides us a view of life under the sun. And we keep, he, he gives us his observations, his reflections. He keeps saying, and I saw, and again I saw. It's as if he's heading down this hallway of, of doorways. And so he heads down that hallway and he sees a door that's marked wisdom. So he opens up that door. And what does he see? All is vanity. He goes on to the next door to mark pleasure. What does he see there? It's all vanity. It's meaningless. 
On and on he goes. Work and toil, skill, youth, wickedness and righteousness. Behind every door, the preacher reaches the same conclusion. All is vanity. Everyone dies. Everything is meaningless. Now there are brief moments through these first four chapters of Ecclesiastes where God makes an appearance. Where, where He kind of goes above the clouds and sees life from above the sun in one sense. We saw this briefly in chapter 3 as, as the preacher recognizes the sovereignty of God. He is the one that's sovereign over time. But then the preacher resumes his way down the hallway of life and experiences, observing the vanity of life under the sun. The end of chapter 3 and all through chapter 4, it's, it's just largely godless and hopeless. All is vanity. Again and again, all is vanity. But here in chapter 5, the preacher's reflections give way to instruction. It's as if he's opened up a door with the word worship on it. He opens up that door and he maybe observes for a period of time. But rather than just providing reflection on what he sees, he turns to his readers and gives them instruction. He addresses them directly to instruct them. Now before we dive into the content of this, these, these verses, these seven verses, I want to make two, two clarifications, just kind of overarching clarifications. In the first place, I need to clarify what I mean when I use the word worship. Now worship can be understood as being private, kind of just what we do in all of life. Romans 12:1. in view of God's mercy, we offer our lives as a living sacrifice. This is our spiritual worship. So there's private worship, all of life worship, and then there's public worship, what we do when we gather together, when we gather with the people of God. And our passage's concern this morning is on public worship. So when I say the word worship, that's what I'm referring to, public worship. The second clarification has to do with God and us. Behind that door marked worship, the preacher sees more of God than we've come across in the previous four chapters. In chapter 4, God isn't even mentioned once. And here in these seven verses, God is mentioned six times. Now there's another word that, that should strike us as we read these verses. And this word tells us something about humanity. It's this word, fool. Behind the door, the preacher has witnessed truth about God and truth about humanity. And this should both humble and instruct us. What the preacher is confronted with when he opens that door is the great distance between God and man. And we see it at the end of verse 2 there. God is in heaven and you are on earth. This really provides the foundation for this passage and the instruction we find in it. In worship, finite, frail humanity comes before the eternal God of endless strength. And our aim in worship is to behold Him rightly so that we might respond to Him appropriately. God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is wholly other than man. He's infinitely beyond man's ability to fully grasp and comprehend. It's like we sang about early this morning. Who has held the oceans in His hand? Who has numbered every grain of sand? Who's done that? God has and no one else has. But even though God is in heaven and we are on earth, we see here that He is a house and He speaks to us. Therefore, we must worship Him in the way that He requires, in a way that is fitting and right. Now, we'll unpack the significance of this as we go, but the main point this morning is this. Because God is in heaven and we are on earth, how we worship together matters. Because God is in heaven and we are on earth, how we worship together matters. What we do when we gather together on Sunday mornings matters a great deal to God. 
And today, through the preacher's instruction, we get, in, get a window into what God wants in our worship. Now here he gives us, he gives us various instructions on worship, for worship. And we're going to walk through these in three points. We're going to cover our preparation for worship, our participation in worship, and the purpose of worship. So number one, our preparation for worship. This is just the first half of verse one, our preparation for worship. The preacher breaks from his litany of reflections in chapter four and instructs his readers, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now the house of God here is the temple. It's the place where God dwells. For ancient Israel, the call was to guard their steps when they come to the place where God dwells. They're called to prepare for worship. Now maybe you've been reading through your Bible in in a year, and uh, you've recently read through Exodus, or you've gone through Leviticus. So much of these books is given to the task of preparation for Israel in their worship. Take the tabernacle as, as an example. In Exodus, chapter after chapter is given to the preparation of this temporary dwelling place for God as Israel wandered in the wilderness. The other day, Corey's been doing a two-year Bible reading plan, so he's eight years old. He reads a couple chapters every day, and he's been in Exodus. And a few days ago, he comments to me, still doing the tabernacle, Dad, still doing the tabernacle. But chapter after chapter, this is what this should look like. This is what this should look like. And it goes on and on. Or think about the Passover. On this day of worship, men had to go out, they had to choose the perfect lamb without blemish. They then slaughtered that lamb. They put blood on their doorposts. They roasted the meat. They got rid of all the leaven in their house. All in preparation for this, this day, this act of worship. Israel's preparation for worship mattered a great deal to God. Why? Why was it such a big deal? Why do we read about it today? Well, the, all this preparation, it reveals something about the God we worship. This preparation showed that Israel's God was holy. No blemish could be on that lamb. No leaven could be in the house. All of the furniture in the tabernacle had to be just right. All of the gold and the wood had to be the very best. All of these preparations, they they point to the reality that God is holy. He is perfect and righteous altogether. Preparation also shows that God is to be revered and honored. So He is holy and He is to be revered. In my former life in business, I would have all kinds of meetings. But a couple times a year, I would meet with a significant player in my industry. And whenever I'd have one of these meetings, I would do all I could to be prepared. I'm, I'm, not only am I going to seek to dress right, not only am I going to make sure I get up early and am ready, I, it affected how I spent my time before the meeting. I spent a lot of time preparing, making sure that I had the information that I thought this person would want, making sure that I had the answers to the questions they might ask. I really wanted to do two things. I wanted to make sure I wasn't, didn't make a fool out of myself and that I made the most of the opportunity to be with this person. And these things necessitated preparation. It was my place to show honor to this or that CEO or supplier or customer, and I did that through preparation. Now, in a similar way, when when Israel comes to the house of God, they are to prepare themselves. And brothers and sisters, the same is true for us today. We are to prepare ourselves for worship. Now, in bridging this gap between 
temple worship of ancient Israel and our worship today, we must note that we don't go to a temple anymore. Surprise, surprise. It's not the place of wor- that makes our worship significant. For Israel, it was the, the place of their worship that, that made it significant. But no longer is this true for us today. And we of all people should know this as we sit in the cafeteria of Cedar Grove Elementary School. What gives our worship significance, though, is its object, its foundation. When Jesus meets a Samaritan woman at the well in John 4, she asks him about where the right place for worship is. And Jesus tells her, The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. Later on, Paul unpacks this new reality of worship after Christ. And we read in Ephesians 2, 19, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens and with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Today, Grace Church, you are being brought together into the household of God and Jesus Christ. He is our foundation. This is the house of God. And here, we are to guard our steps. We are to come prepared for our public worship, prepared for our gathering together. Now there's a particular approach to God that fits the occasion of worship. There's a right approach as we come to God. One commentator, Sidney Gradanus, puts it this way. He says, Be careful when you go to the temple. Think of what you are about to do. You are not just dropping in on a neighbor for a friendly chat. You are not just passing time with a friend. You are going to the house of God. You are going to the place where the Almighty Creator stoops down to meet with you. Guard your steps. Now just as you would prepare for an important business meeting or to meet someone famous or powerful, how much more so should we prepare to meet together with God? This is not just another day of the week. This is the Lord's Day. So what does it look like for us today to guard our steps, for us to prepare for worship? Now if you were here a few months ago, I preached a sermon that answered the question, why Sunday? Sought to answer the question, why Sunday? And in it, I provided three points of preparation. I mentioned you can prepare by waking up early and going to bed early enough on Saturday night. You can prepare by meditating on God and His grace that He's shown us in Jesus. You can prepare by considering the interests of others. Now, I would encourage you to go back and listen to these opportunities to prepare for worship together. I think they they are helpful and they'll transform your experience of public worship. But this morning, in light of this passage, I want to offer one more with an eye toward guarding our steps. And that is to, to disengage. To disengage. And now when I say disengage, I mean to step away from earthly cares. One Puritan, George Swinnick, he puts it this way. He says, The mariner that intends a voyage puts his ship, ship off from land. So truly, friend, If you would launch heavenward on the Lord's day, there is a necessity that the vessel of your heart be put off from the earth. If we want to be of a heavenly mind this morning, as we gather together in our public worship, our hearts need to be put off from the earth. So how do we put off our hearts from the earth? Now you may be thinking about your your Saturday night watching the game, or watching a movie, or going to a party, 
Or you could think of Sunday morning and the time you spend on Facebook or reading the paper, if people still do that, or reading online, or trying to get something done around the house, or setting your fantasy football lineup. There are all kinds of distractions, all kinds of entrapments that keep us at harbor on the earth. These are the kinds of things that we should actually make an effort to disengage from as we come to worship God. These are the kinds of earthly cares that impede our engagement with God in public worship. Think about being on an important mission or errand. You will not let anything get in your way or distract you from the task at hand, even if it's a good thing. There have been once or twice where I've had to get up in the middle of the night and go to the store and get medicine for one of my kids. In those moments, it doesn't matter who's coming to say hi to me, or it doesn't matter what I see on my way, there's, there's one thing I'm going to do, and that's go get that medicine and bring it back to my kids. doesn't matter what it is around me. Nothing's going to distract me from accomplishing my task, no matter how good it is. Stephen Charnock, a 17th century Puritan, he uses the idea of a farmer weeding his cornfield. He doesn't stop to consider the virtue of the weeds, how beautiful they look or how good they smell. No, his only concern is that these weeds will choke the corn. He then writes, Consider what you are about, and if anything interpose, get in the way that may divert you or distract you or cool your affections in your present worship. Cast it out. Cast it out. So we are certainly to guard our steps from the world, but we should also seek to disengage from sin. So we disengage from the world, we disengage from sin. I've heard one illustration that likens our souls to a container. And if that container is unclean, you can pour something into that container, no matter how sweet that liquid is, it will go bad if that container is unclean. Whatever you pour into it will turn sour. We disengage from our sin by confessing our sin. David Clarkson writes, Come not rashly without due consideration with whom you have to do and what you are doing. Come not with guilt and pollution on your consciences. Come not with minds and affections entangled with in the world. Brothers and sisters, our call this morning from God's Word is to, to guard our steps as we come to worship God. And this is a, this is a hard thing with, with our minds that are so easily entangled by the world. But bear in mind what you're doing when you come together to praise God, to hear from Him. He speaks to us. He speaks life-changing, eternal truth to us. Is God not too great that we cannot give Him more than two hours on a Sunday morning? Is God not so great that we cannot give Him the hour watching the game on a Saturday night? God is great, and He is worthy to be praised. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. The preacher next turns to our participation in worship. This is number two, our participation in worship. So we looked at our preparation for worship, now our participation in worship. And this is the, almost the rest of the text, all the way to the beginning of verse 7. We're going to look at this in two parts. Our participation in worship was summed up with, with concise clarity in a tweet that I read this past week by a Sovereign Grace pastor, Craig Cabanis, and he says, Shooting for more ear and less mouth shooting for more ear and less mouth. This is the preacher's first instruction for our participation. More ear and less mouth. Walk into most any church or ask any leader what is the most important thing when we come to God in public worship. And you'll hear all kinds of stuff. 
People will talk about production and flow. People will talk about engagement and excitement. People will talk about never having a dead moment. People will talk about welcome and care and love. One word you will seldom, if ever, hear in these conversations is listen. Listen. The preacher tells us, verse 1, to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools. Our participation in worship, it begins with listening. Old Testament temple worship, it began in silence when they came to offer sacrifices. One commentator writes that the silence shouted out the steadfast love of a holy, holy, holy God for undeserving sinners. Then this silence would be broken by the reading from God's Word. God's people gathered to hear God speak. We are listeners before we are ever talkers when we come together. For us at Grace Church, this is one of the reasons that we start every week with a call to worship. We start with the Word of God. It's God that calls us together. God is the one who gets the first word. We don't gather because we have something great to say. We gather because what God has already said is that which we need to hear. So we gather to first listen. So more ear. But we don't only listen when we gather. We are also to speak when we come together. But when we do, the preacher tells us, let your words be few at the end of verse 2. Let your words be few. Jesus illustrates this for us beautifully in Luke chapter 18, which would be a passage you are all no doubt familiar with. Luke chapter 18, we meet a tax collector, and a Pharisee. Let me turn here. Luke 18. This is what Jesus says, a parable. Two men went up up into the temple to pray. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. So he goes on and on about his greatness. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Jesus says, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is not unlike what we read here in Ecclesiastes 5. Which one of these men that prayed do you think played the fool in worship? Clearly, it's the tax collector that recognized that God is in heaven and we are on earth. And so he lets his words be few. Often in our worship, we are far more concerned with what we bring and what we have to offer. This is why we sing songs like we sang this morning, recognizing that what we do What we do when we gather together, it earns us nothing before God. No humble dress, no fervent prayer, no lifted hands, no tearful songs, no recitation of the truth can justify a single wrong. The third verse goes on, no separation from the world. No work I do, no gift I give can cleanse my conscience, cleanse my hands. I cannot cause my soul to live. But then this is our hope. But Jesus died and rose again. The power of death is overcome. He is our hope. The preacher then concludes this instruction with a proverb. Verse 3, For a dream comes with much business, and a fool's voice 
with many words. Using different words, he is here highlighting vanity in worship, a theme we've seen again and again. A dream, while all kinds of things can go on. In a dream, you could be a billionaire. In a dream, you could have all the power in the world. There's all kinds of activity and excitement potentially in a dream, but it's meaningless. So is a fool's voice with many words. This is vanity. So if you want to be a fool in worship, come to talk more and listen less. If you want to be a true worshiper, God's disciple in worship, listen more and talk less. The preacher then continues on with this same theme of participation in worship by providing a a second instruction here. So, more ear, less voice. Second, keep your word. Keep your word. This guides our participation in worship. When God speaks to us, there is a necessary response. Verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. A vow is a conditional promise made. In Old Testament Israel, you would come to the temple and ask God for something in return for something else. Think of Hannah in 1 Samuel. Unable to have a child, she comes and she asks God to give her a son. And in return, she would give this son back to God. Now put yourself in Hannah's shoes. She desperately wants a child. She has been barren, and so she pleads, pleads with God, give me a child. Now when fin- God finally gives her a son, think about what must have gone through her mind. I know what would have gone through my mind. I would have been thinking, well, like, God, I'll still give him to you, but like, maybe I'll wait until he's 13 or 18. I'll wait a while. Or I could have thought, you know what? I already have a son now, and God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. I know these things about God. So it'll probably be okay if I just hold on to him. God can serve, I mean, Samuel can serve God from from here. So I'm going to keep my son. But witness Hannah's faith in these moments. As soon as her son Samuel was weaned, she followed through on her vow. She didn't delay in paying it. She gave him to God. Now let's fast forward to New Testament times. We come across a couple in Acts 5, Ananias and Sapphira. Maybe you've heard of them. This couple, they sell some property and earn a nice profit from it. And in their, in their godliness and devotion to God, they come before the apostles and lay all this money at the apostles' feet, thinking, what a great thing they have done. Now when Ananias comes... He probably made a great show of how significant this offering was as he brought it to the apostles. Only he knew that him and Sapphira, his wife, had decided, you know what, we're going to keep a little bit for ourselves. But we're still going to give this great sum to God. They go before the apostles as if they're giving all. And Peter, the apostles, they they call him out on his lie. And right then and there, Ananias dies. After a few hours pass, Sapphira, his wife, comes in. Peter asks, probably pointing to the the sum of money, is this how much you sold the land for? And she replies, yes. What happens to her? She dies right there and then. God's judgment comes upon her. When you vow a vow, God is not messing around. Jesus says, let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. A wise worshiper, when he speaks, 
he measures his words. He speaks sincerely. He speaks with sincerity. Now move forward to our lives today. We don't worship in this same way, but there's no doubt that you have resolved to do something or to stop doing something in response to God. The words we use, what we say, matters to God. For me, I want to have self-control. So I'll think things like, you know what, I'm not going to eat any more chocolate chips today. Or let me go without sugar for this week. Let me just see how that goes. And then I come home from a meeting that night and Christine's made a batch of chocolate chip cookies. And I think, well, you know what, I guess I can try again tomorrow. I'll start again tomorrow. We prove ourselves fools in how we talk. We make all kinds of vows even in our worship. We seek to do godly things. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to go to church every week. I'm going to memorize a book of the Bible. But listen to the wisdom of the preacher in verse 5. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. When When we say these things and don't follow through, do you think of this as sin? I know I don't, but that's what the preacher calls it. That's what God calls it. Verse 6, let not your mouth lead you into sin. I tend to think of it as like, you know what, we'll get them next time. Or as if it's just like, "Ah, that was a little mistake, or my timing was just off. You know, next week is the week it really starts. When I said I would read my Bible every day or I read through my Bible this year, I really meant 2018, not 2017. Or this is the time. Like now, now I'm getting down. This is when it gets real. We are fools. We must be sincere in our worship, not vain, not meaningless. Verse 7, for when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. God calls us in our participation in worship to keep our word. And we keep our word, we see here, without delay. We don't wait to pay a vow. And without denial, we don't say it was a mistake. So let's, let's bring it down to today. Let's say you hear this, mor- this sermon this morning and you're confronted with some truth from the word of God. Maybe it was on preparation. Guard your steps when you come to the house of God. And you're thinking, you know what? This week, I'm going to go to bed early on Saturday night. Or I'm not going to get on Instagram on Sunday morning. God takes this seriously, and you should too. Don't deny this kind of commitment, otherwise you worship as a fool worships. Don't delay this kind of commitment, otherwise you make a mockery of your own word. In our participation in worship, we need more ear and less mouth. And when we do speak, we must keep our word. Now this brings us to our final point this morning. Number three, the purpose of worship. We've looked at our preparation for worship, our participation in worship. Now, the purpose of worship. To put it simply, the purpose of worship is to fear God. See this in the very end of verse 7 there. God is the one you must fear. Now think back for a moment to chapter 3, if you were with us. There was a brief but clear recognition then of the sovereignty of God. The preacher says that God's sovereignty is a reason we should fear God. He writes this, Whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken away from it. God is the sovereign one whose work and word, they're eternal, they're complete, and they're sufficient. And then he says, God has done it so that people fear before him. When we see God in the glory of his sovereign control over all things, then we should respond 
in reverential awe, in fear. We are to tremble before the awesomeness of God, yet place our trust in Him. God's sovereignty leads us to rightly fear God. Now here in chapter 5, the preacher adds to the grounding of the reason to fear God, the reason for fearing God. And it's this, God is in heaven and you are on earth. God is holy and righteous. He is altogether separate from us, so you must guard your steps. God speaks to us, so we must listen. God takes seriously what we say. And this is the great end of the matter. The preacher sums up all he has said in these seven verses with this statement. God is the one you must fear. Because God is holy and righteous, we must fear Him. So what does this fear look like? What does it mean to fear God? Beginning with Martin Luther, the reformer, theologians have spoken of two types of fear in relation to God. There's servile fear and there's filial fear. And I think they're up there, yeah. Servile fear, filial fear. Servile fear is the dread that we would feel toward a tormentor. We can fear God in this way when we see Him only as a potential source of harm. We only fear punishment and consequences. We are fearing God in, the, in this servile way, but this is an ungodly fear. That's an ungodly fear. Filial fear is taken from the, the Latin word that has to do with family. It's the way a child will fear his father. Here there is a great deal of love and respect, and the child only wants to please the parent. Filial fear always asks this question. It always asks, will my father approve? This is godly fear. We fear God in this way when we see him, not as this potential source of harm, but when we see him as the greatest good who alone is worthy of honor and devotion. Our fear of God arises from reverence for God. And we cannot revere and respect God if we do not know God. We cannot fear a God that we do not know. And God is the one you must fear. This is the purpose of our worship, to fear God with a godly fear. It's to have a right view of God's great glory, of His infinite majesty, that we might walk before Him in sincerity, in reverence, in devotion, Brothers and sisters, is this the God you know? Do you know that God is in heaven and you are on earth? Are you acquainted with the infinite distance between the majesty of God and the depravity of man? If you are, then you will fear God. You will worship Him with reverence and awe. But maybe for you, this isn't your God. Maybe your God is manageable and nice, and you just pull Him out when you need Him, when you need help for something. You go to church because it's the right thing to do, or because it makes you feel good, or you just need a spiritual charge before heading into the week. We stand today in great danger of constructing a Christianity that is not Christianity at all. If you look at the worship in the name of God in many churches today, sadly you will see a religion that revolves around man. It revolves around the self not around the God that we must fear. There's a cultural idea that's, that's deep-seated in our churches today, is that Christianity exists for us. It's there to help us be and do what we want to be and do. But true Christianity is something else entirely. True Christianity, it makes demands on our lives and places a claim on us. 
Paul writes in 1 Corinthians that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. And that price was the blood of Jesus Christ. This blood is the only way that we can come to God. This blood is the only thing that bridges the gap between this God who is in heaven and us sinners who are on earth. And this blood makes a fantastic claim upon our lives and our affections on our worship. So brothers and sisters, do you, do you fear God? Do you know God? Do you know the One who spoke the universe into existence? Do you know the One who shaped and formed and fashioned you in your mother's womb? Do you know that God? He is worthy to be praised. Fear Him. Because God is in heaven and we are on earth, how we worship matters. Puritan George Swinnick writes this, But now between God and us, there is an infinite distance. And therefore there ought to be, if it were possible, infinite reverence. He is so vastly above and beyond all others in excellency that He alone deserves the name of excellency. Therefore His name is holy and revered. And He is to be greatly feared. The greatest excellency calls for the greatest reverence. This is the end of the matter. This sums up the purpose of our worship. Fear God. Brothers and sisters, know Him, the true God, and obey Him. May we, Grace Church, in our preparation for worship, in our participation in worship, show this to be the great purpose of our worship, to fear God. You bow your heads and pray with me. Oh, Father, we come before You and we recognize this infinite distance between who You are as God in heaven and who we are as sinners here on earth. But we come in light of what You have done for us through Jesus, through His blood. And we we praise Your great and awesome name. For infinite excellence is deserving of infinite reverence, the greatest reverence. So Lord, may our lives worship You. May we worship You in our public worship as we gather together. You alone are worthy to be praised. You alone are worthy to be feared. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.